me ask you this. What, what do you think it will be like to be completely blind? Not being able to see anything. To be in total darkness always, since birth. What would that be like? There are currently over one and a half million people, according to the National Federation of the Blind. There are one and a half adults or people who are legally blind. And they say that almost 10 million have some sort of visual impairment. That there are 10 million people who have some affliction with their sight. And you know, Jesus was particularly sensitive to the blind. It's interesting, if you look in the Gospels, the the, uh, healing that occurs most, that's recorded most frequently in the Gospels, is those who are blind. Jesus was particularly sensitive to them. In fact, who can forget the story of Bartimaeus, right? The guy who, as Jesus was approaching on Palm Sunday going into Jerusalem, there's this guy crying out, uh, I want to see, I want to see, you know, and the crowds are telling him to shut up and they're trying to move Jesus along, but Jesus stopped and he took notice of this guy and he healed him. It's amazing. Again, that was on Palm Sunday. And this morning, I want to turn our attention back about six months before that. In John chapter 9, there's an account of Jesus approaching another blind man. And I want us to look at that text together this morning as we celebrate the Lord's resurrection. For it was on that day that this man who was born blind met Jesus and his life was changed forever. And it is my hope that the same takes place for you. The setting here, as we approach John chapter 9, is Jesus has been uh, preaching in the temple, as was his custom and his habit. And as was the habit of the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day, they were against him. They had confronted him. And in this particular situation, they had actually tried to kill him by stoning him because Jesus claims to be the Son of God. Well, Jesus makes his way out of that situation. And as he's leaving the temple, he comes upon a man A man who cannot see. In fact, let's pick up the account in verse 1 of John chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? He answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. They said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. Let's stop there for a moment. We're introduced here to a story about a man who's born blind. And and we see as Jesus was exiting the temple gates, there was this man who caught his attention. And we don't know the man's name. We aren't told anything about that. But one thing we do know, one thing that we do learn about him is that he was blind since birth. And disability in those days was a very sad and tragic thing. Because if you had a disability, essentially the only way you could survive would be to beg. 
And so this man, as many others, came to the temple gates in hopes that the worshipers there would offer him some form of money or help. And so he begged there, holding out his hands, unable to see. Now imagine his condition. I'd asked you earlier what it would be like to not to see. What it would be like not to see in that culture. Where day to day this guy is going to the temple and he's sitting there and he's begging, hearing people going by but not able to see them, holding out in his hands in hopes that someone will put some money or food in them. Mostly ignored. Except for one day, Jesus noticed him. It says there that Jesus saw him. Our compassionate Savior is like that. Where there are needs that others don't see, Jesus does. And he saw this man in his particular condition. And the disciples must have noticed him gazing at this man who was blind because they, before Jesus says or does anything, they ask him a question. They said, Jesus, now, this man's blindness, was it essentially his fault, his sin, or or was it his parents? That reveals a, a commonly held notion or belief that, you know, when something goes wrong in a person's life, it must be because of what they've done, right? Well, Jesus corrects them and tells them that that is not the case. And you know, this question seemed to me to be very odd because he not only, or they not only ask if perhaps his parents had done something wrong, but they ask if he had done something wrong to be born blind. Now think about that. What could he have done in his mother's womb that would be considered sinful, that would cause him to have been born blind? But you see, that reflects actually a belief that was held by many of the rabbis of that day, that in fact an infant in the womb could sin. There is a documentation of various teachings that the rabbis believe. In fact, there are some that indicated uh, in Genesis when Jacob and Esau were wrestling, that Esau had actually committed sin in wrestling with Jacob in his mother's womb. There was also uh, other documents which showed that if a woman had practiced idolatry while she was pregnant, that actually the baby too was participating in that idolatry. And so things like that, were what the disciples had heard growing up. And so they thought, well, so maybe this man is an infant in his mother's womb. Maybe he had sinned, or maybe his parents had sinned. But Jesus corrects them. He says, no, 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 it wasn't because of them or him, but this was an opportunity. God is going to display his glory through this man and do good to this man, as we're going to see in a moment. Then Jesus does something rather peculiar. After telling the disciples, look, guys, you need to focus on doing good works now and not trying to figure out why people are in the situations that they're in. And then right after that, he does a rather peculiar thing. Rather than just healing that man's eyes in an instant, rather than fixing his nerves and whatever was wrong to the fact that he was born blind, he spits on the ground. And he spits enough spit that, you know, junior high boys love this part of the story. I won't demonstrate. But... Right, He spits enough on the ground to make some mud. And he puts the mud on the guy's eyes. And rather than healing him right away, which he could have done, he tells the guy to do what? Go down to the pool of Siloam. Now this pool was about probably a half mile away. It was in the southwest corner of Jerusalem in that day. And actually has been recently discovered. About 10, 12 years ago, the guy was digging to fix a plumbing problem and he happened upon this pool that was built most likely in the day's of Hezekiah back in 700 BC. And so Jesus tells this man, go down and wash there. Now, the question is, why? Why did he tell him to go down and wash in that particular pool? Now, there are many 
answers that have been offered. In fact, you would not believe how much scholars have to say about the reasons why Jesus did this. Pages and pages and pages. Many trees have died trying to explain what was going on here. But, you know, I I think the answer is fairly simple. Two parts to it. One is, you know, the reason that Jesus spit on the ground for mud, put them on his eye, is because that's how he wanted to do it. There's also another reason, and I think this is one that John points out. If you look carefully at verse 7, notice something there. Notice John inserts a little parenthetical comment. For he says there, after Jesus tells him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, John then says this, that translated Siloam means sent. Now, why does John insert that little comment? Is he trying to help teach us Aramaic? No, but he's wanting us to remember, those of us who are readers that don't understand the language, to understand what that word means because it's related to the whole point of the chapter. If you go back to verse 4, Jesus describes himself as one who is sent from God. And we're going to see in the whole discussion that follows between the Pharisees and Christ the argument over whether he did come from God, whether God did send him. And so by Jesus doing this, he's intentionally drawing attention to the fact that he is the one that was sent from God and he sends this man to the pool of sent in order that he would know and everyone else would know that he is the Messiah. That he is the one who's been sent not only to heal, but also to save. And so, Jesus tells him, go down this pool and wash off. I'm sure we aren't told what the guy was thinking at that very moment, but, you know, perhaps something to the effect of, well, you know, what can it hurt? (laughs) And I probably, you know, a bath always does me a little good, so I'm going to go down there. So he does. He goes down to the pool, washes off the mud from his eyes, and the text says he immediately comes back. And he comes back and he tells his neighbors what happened. I mean, can you imagine when he dipped his hands in there, wiped the mud off, and he opened his eyes? What must that guy have been thinking? For the first time, he can see. And he he goes back, and his neighbors are so shocked because this guy's been blind from birth, and there's an argument that occurs. Someone say, well, this can't be him. Others say, no, it is. And the whole time the guy's there, it is. I'm the guy. I was the one who was blind. Now I can see. Well, the neighbors get stirred up, and so they take the guy down to the Pharisees in order to sort this whole thing out. And this is where the amazing miracle turns into a courtroom drama. Look with me at verse 13. It says there, they brought, that is the neighbors, brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. Well, let's stop there a minute. So we... we, we find out here, very important little thought that John throws in, that this healing took place on the Sabbath. Uh-oh, right? That was a big problem for the Pharisees, right? Because they had taken the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath to do no work, and they'd added a bunch of other regulations and rules and laws on top of that, rules that were not in the Word of God. 
people tend to do that, right? And so here they had all these legalistic regulations. One of them was when Jesus actually spit on the ground and was kneading the mud together, that was a, a violation of the law, at least the law that they had put together. It was illegal to heal anyone on the Sabbath unless it was to preserve life. And it was a violation to anoint someone on the eyes for the purpose of healing. And so to the Pharisees, this Jesus was a Sabbath breaker, a, a wretched sinner. And that is what caused the conundrum for them because they were wondering, well, he's obviously a sinner because he doesn't keep the law, their law, but, but yet he healed this guy. Or that's what it appears. And so they decided, you know what, this guy's story must have holes in it. So they interrogate him, right? And then they think, you know what, let's bring the parents in. We've got to come to the bottom of this. Let's pick it up in verse 19. They question them, that is the parents, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And for this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Interesting little story, right? They bring the parents in. Okay, admit it. This, this can't be your son, right? Or, or he wasn't born blind originally, was he? Oh, yeah, that's our son. He was born blind, but they stopped there. They weren't going to say anything about this Jesus guy, right? In fact, they throw their son under the bus, right? So he's an adult. Ask him about that part. I have no idea. Come on. Who do you think the guy went to after he could see and told them? I'm telling you, if my daughter Bree got up one day and started walking, she'd come right to me and say, God healed me. I know that he did. He went and told his neighbors. Certainly he told his parents. We don't know. We don't know. But that is our son. He was born blind. Well, the parents' testimony confirmed that a bona fide miracle had indeed taken place. But, but the Pharisees could not give credit to Jesus. And so they, they bring the ex-blind man in again and try to interrogate him, get him to deny that it was Jesus who did it. Look at verse 24. So a second time they called the man who had been, been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Kind of getting the repetition here, aren't we? So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? You got his sarcasm there. They reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to him, said to them, well, here's an amazing thing. You do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? So they put him out. You get the story, right? So they're saying, hey, hey, bub, this guy's a sinner. No way he can heal you. So tell us the truth. How'd this happen? And he's like, look, look, I already told you. And he's incredulous and he realizes you know this isn't jiving with him at this point he realizes these guys are hypocrites 
And he begins to see through what's going on here. And he says, you know, how could God let a wicked sinner do what this guy just did to me? And you know what? It's interesting because there's not one recorded case, either in the Old Testament or in the Jewish literature that exists at this time. There's not one case of a man born blind or a woman who was healed. So this man said, you know, something like this has never happened before. He was right. He was right. They ask him again for the umpteenth time. How did Jesus do it? He says, why? Why do you want to know? I've already told you. Do you want to be his disciples too? Well, that lit the fuse right there. They were incensed. They didn't want to give Jesus credit for this miracle. And in fact, did you notice the whole time during this interrogation, the Pharisees never used the name Jesus. They just kept saying the man, this man. After they say in verse 29, that we know God did not send him, but we don't know where he is from. The man, the healed blind man, then gives the boldest statement that he's given to this point. He gives him a little sermon where he tells him, look, this man told me to go down to the pool of scent, and he is a man indeed sent from God. Notice the progression of the blind man's uh, description of Jesus. In verse 11, he refers to him as the man who's called Jesus. And then in verse 17, he says he is a prophet. And then in verse 31, that he is God-fearing and does his will. And then in verse 33, that he is from God. See the progression here? In fact, he ends with this statement in verse 34. Look, if this man were not from God, he could never have the power to do anything like this. He got it. That's when the Pharisees then gave him the right foot of fellowship right on out the door of the synagogue. <laughs> Don't let the door hit you on your way out, buddy. Now, at this point, it's important to ask this question. We need to do this of any passage, but especially in the narrative sections of Scripture. And that is this. Why did John include this story in his gospel? It's not in any of the other gospels. Why did John write about it. And why did he spend all this time talking about the investigation? I mean, isn't the focus here the Jesus healing a man born blind and that, that incredible power that, that shows that he's the one? Why this whole verse 8 to 34 and this whole back and forth in the interrogation? What was John trying to show us here? I think what he's doing here is not only showing us the spectacular nature of the miracle that took place, but there's an even more critical truth that he wants us to see. He doesn't want us to miss it. Here in John chapter 9, the truth, the, the main point that we're intended to see here is not simply the healing of a blind man. Yes, the focus in this story is blindness, but it is blindness of a different kind. Look with me at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into the world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. You see, the whole chapter, the whole account has been building up to this point. It's been building up to right here. And John 
shows us the point by way of irony. He does that a lot in his gospel. And here the irony is this. You have a a man here who cannot see with his physical eyes, but turns out being able to see with his spiritual eyes. And then you have the Pharisees who can see with their physical eyes, but are spiritually blind. They don't get it. Another irony here is that you have this unlearned beggar (laughs) proclaiming the profound truths of the identity of Christ and who he is, and these enlightened Pharisees who had all the knowledge of the Old Testament who don't have a clue. They are the real spiritual beggars. And when the Pharisees ask in verse 40, we, we are not blind too, are we? You know, they weren't asking a question. They were making a declaration. We're not the blind ones here. But you see, they were the blind ones here, weren't they? They were the ones that didn't get it. They were the ones who could not see. They were blinded by unbelief. They were blinded by their self-righteousness. They were blinded by their desire for power and control and position. They were blinded by their love for knowledge, for knowledge's sake. They were blinded by their status. They were blinded by their external piety. They were blind. And Jesus was not only unnecessary to them, he was also a threat. Friends, that's the spiritually blind person. The one who says, you know, I I don't need Jesus. I'm fine without him. In fact, in some ways, Jesus is a threat because following him means I can't do what I want to do. And friends, my fear is there are some here today in the same condition as these Pharisees. that, That you are spiritually blind. And don't even know it. You know... You may be blinded by the same self-righteousness that these Pharisees had, that they believed they could earn God's favor and His pleasure and please Him by their deeds. That even though they had sinned, they could pay for those sins by good works that they have done. Maybe you are in the same camp as they are. God's Word says that even our righteous deeds to God are considered like filthy garments. We're saved by God's grace, not by our good works, as Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says. Some of you may be blinded by a wrong view of God. Maybe you think, you know, God is love. And because of that, he'll overlook all the sins that have been committed. And someday, everybody will have the opportunity to go to heaven. Maybe they'll have to do some, some time, you know, in purgatory or something. But eventually, everyone will have a chance after death. But in Revelation 20, verse 15, it says, Any who have not confessed their sin and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will suffer an eternity apart from Him. Some people are blinded just by the things of the world. There's a lot of stuff we could do here that's a lot of fun. A lot of pleasures in this life. Things that we enjoy, but are temporary. Satan has a whole variety of things he would love for you to pursue and get involved with, as long as none of them include following Christ. He'll offer you anything you want. And so many are spiritually blind, and they trade those 70 or 80 years of of pleasure for an eternity of pain. Some may be blinded by doubt or skepticism. Is the Bible really true? I mean, come on. Six days of creation, a flood over the whole earth, Jesus rising from the dead. Didn't they find his tomb or something somewhere? James Cameron did a whole thing on the, the tomb of Jesus, I don't know, about 10, 15 years ago. I won't get into that. But anyway, there's a lot of skepticism. There's a lot of disbelief. Some who trust science or philosophy or your own experience. 
Listen, I spent a long time in science. I was an engineer for a number of years. And there's one thing I learned in all the study and my experience as an engineer, and it is this. Man does not know everything. Things change. Our understanding changes. We are not all-knowing, but there is one who is. Are you going to trust science or your experience or trust the Creator? There's even a more dangerous type of spiritual blindness. It is one that, that I was caught up in for much of my life. And it is the blindness of partial repentance. The worst place a person in this life can be is to think they're a Christian and they're not. Tess, I loved your testimony. That's exactly where I was at. I thought, you know, I prayed a prayer. I went to church. I read the Bible. I believe Jesus died on a cross. I believe he rose again in three days. I didn't have a problem with that. But I never gave my life to Christ. I never put my trust in him. I never repented and believed and believed in him alone for salvation. I never did that. And so all along I thought everything's fine. I'm just living my own life, doing the sins I want to do. But I believe Jesus is the Son of God. And so that's going to take care of me once I die. I'm willing to bet there are some here in that very situation. Listen, you're blinded. Partial repentance is no repentance at all. Just think if you had done some horrible crime against somebody else harmed their child in some way intentionally. And you went up and said, you know what, I did those terrible things to your kid, but here, here's a year's supply of chocolate bars. Parents, would you accept that if someone abused your child? Say, here, I want to make up for it. What do you want to hear from them? Please forgive me, I have sinned horribly against you. There's nothing I can do to repay it. We've sinned horribly against the one who made us. We have sinned horribly against our dear creator who sent his own son to pay a penalty you and I could not pay. And there's nothing we can do to say, you know what? Here's some good deeds I want to offer to you. That's a box of chocolate that you're trying to give God. And say, no. Forgiveness is only found in his son. Is only found there. Don't be spiritually blind. Don't think you're right with God when you're not. My friend, John gave us this story so that you would be compelled to ask yourself, am I the same as those Pharisees? Again, maybe your blindness comes in a different way than theirs. Do you think you are fine without him? You know, the Pharisees, they come up with every excuse in the book to reject what was said about Jesus here. In fact, I mean, they had a miracle right in front of them. (laughs) They couldn't deny it. They tried. They tried to get the man to change his story. They tried to get the parents to to say something different, that this wasn't their son, but they couldn't deny it. Yeah, you can imagine when the guys standing there, they're probably doing, how many fingers do I have up? You know, they're testing him, right? But they couldn't deny it. He could see. They couldn't deny he was born blind. But they still rejected him. They saw Jesus perform these many miracles. They saw him, heard him give these incredible, powerful sermons. He even showed mercy upon them and confronted them. They continued to reject and disbelieve. And you know what? We've been given more light than those guys had at that time. They only had the Old Testament. They hadn't even 
seen or heard about the cross yet or his resurrection. We have. We have the whole Bible. You're sitting here today in a sermon hearing about having just heard songs sung about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ who is one day returning. You have more knowledge than these Pharisees had. What are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? The real question is this, my friend. Do you want to see? The blind man did. Look at verse 35. Jesus seeks him out. And he asks him a simple question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Uh, Son of Man there is a specific term in reference to Daniel chapter 7, which describes the Messiah, the, the coming one, the one God would send as king over all the earth, the one who would be the very Son of God. And so he asked this man, do you believe in the Son of Man? And when Jesus asked him here, do you believe in the Son of Man? He was asking for more than just do you agree with some of the information about him. See, here he was, this was not a question of intellectual agreement, but rather it was one of relational commitment. Right? The demons believe all the facts about the cross. They saw it. They would affirm it. In fact, remember what happened. Every time Jesus came around and confronted the demons, they said, you're the Holy One of Israel. They knew who he was. So just saying that isn't enough. Just saying, you know, I affirm Jesus died on a cross and he rose again on the third day. You do need to believe that. But at the same time, there needs to be a relational commitment. I will follow you for the rest of your days. Jesus is saying here in this, do you believe? Will you trust me? Will you stop living life your way and commit to follow me? He's saying here in these words, commit to turn from your sin. Will you do that? Will you love me with all your heart? Will you forsake the world and follow me? Will you do what you have been created to do, which is to glorify God and enjoy him forever? Will you trust in, Jesus is saying, my death alone for salvation? And right now, friends, Jesus is before you with the same question. Do you believe in me? Do you believe? The blind man, bless his heart, he knew exactly the answer. Look what he does in verse 38. He says this, Lord, I believe. And then this happens. He's not prompted. He's not told what to do next. But what does this man do? After declaring his trust in the Lord Jesus as the Son of Man, the coming Messiah who would reign and rule for eternity, he then drops to his knees and worships him. Friends, that, that is the obvious sign of a person who's been reborn. That is the obvious response of someone who's been given spiritual sight. They want to worship Jesus. You don't have to drum up the emotion and manipulate through a nice sounding band or, or music or cajoling somebody to worship Jesus. You need to worship Jesus now. You need to worship Him. It's going to come natural. You know, when my child was born, no one had to tell me, okay, You know, the nurse wasn't sitting there, right, Tim? This is the part where you start crying out of incredible emotion from seeing this moment with your child being born. You got that? Right now. Yeah, he's coming now. Right right now. Is that what? You didn't have to tell me to have joy when I saw each of my babies being born. It came natural. And so it is for one who's truly put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. They will naturally want to express their joy and gratitude and love for him. So if you're wondering, do I know him or not? 
If you're having the same questions that our sister Tess had, you know, I, where am I at with him? Well, if you don't have a natural desire to worship Christ, there's your answer. It's not perfect. We have struggles. There are sins in the journey. But again, you don't have to tell someone who knows Christ, okay, you need to want to worship him now. Well, that's what this man does. He worships the Lord Jesus, the one who had given him sight. You know, I asked you earlier, if, you know, what, what do you think it would be like to be born blind? Of course, at that time, I, I was talking about physical blindness. And most of us don't know what that's like. We don't know what it is like to be blind. We don't know what it is like to be born with that condition. But all of us were born spiritually blind. Every single one of us in this room. The Bible says that. All have sinned. There's none good, not even one. And the real issue is this. Do you want to see? Do you want to see? You know, Jesus isn't looking for people who think they can see. He's not looking for people who think they have it all together. He says it right here to the Pharisees. I came for sinners. I came for those who realize they can't see. You say you see. So fine, you're going to remain as you are. He came to those who are the spiritual Bartimaeuses of the world to say, I want to see, I want to see, help me see. John Newton was one such man. He's the one who wrote the great hymn, Amazing Grace. I don't know if you know his testimony, but he was a foul-mouthed, immoral, drunken, slave-trading sailor. I mean, if you had a book of the list of sins, he's pretty much checked them all off. Horrible man. His past often came to haunt him. The things he had done to other human beings. Just. And so when he writes in his hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind. Now I see. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15 that Christ Jesus himself came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul adds this, among whom I am the foremost. You see, if you know you're a sinner, you have somebody that came for you. The Lord Jesus Christ. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon put it well. He said this, Christ died for our sins, not for our virtues. It is not your efficiencies, but your deficiencies, which entitle you to the Lord Jesus. It is not your wealth, but your need. It is not what you have, but what you have not. It is not what you can boast of, but what you mourn over. That is what qualifies you to receive the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus, he he sought out that blind man. And this morning he's doing the same thing for you. You're here. You're hearing from God's word. Jesus welcomes all who are truly contrite, who truly recognize what they have done. We all stand as sinners before a holy God. None of us are. There's no levels of of goodness here. I'm just as wretched as you guys. If I were to tell you my life story, you'd you'd all leave. What's this guy even doing behind a pulpit? But God is gracious. He was gracious to John Newton. He was gracious to that blind man. He was gracious to me. 
and not because any of us deserved it. Do you want to see? Do you want to see? If not, then you need to look at these last couple of verses because Jesus in them gives a warning. Notice in verse 40, after the Pharisees, they give that retort, you know, we are not blind too, are we? And Jesus tells them this, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Their spiritual pride prevented them from the humility that was necessary to recognize they were sinners in need of salvation. So even though they said they saw, Jesus said, no, no, you don't. He's saying here the ones that are forgiven, the ones who've been cleansed of their sins, the ones who are made right with God, these are the ones who realize they are blind in sin and realize that only Christ can give them the sight they need. But the ones that don't have a problem with spiritual blindness, the ones who say, you know, I don't have a problem with sin, Jesus says, your sin remains. Proverbs 26.12 says this, Do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Most of us have heard John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Most of us know that. Many of us have heard it. But not many of us know what he says right after that. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. You know, a lot of times we, we think of evil deeds as these horrible, gross immoralities or just terrible abuses. But you know, Every sin, every thought to a holy God is atrocious. We just don't understand it because none of us are perfectly holy like God is. But you know, Jesus did not wish for any to perish. He went after that blind man. He'd given him an incredible gift of sight. But Jesus was more interested in giving him the more incredible gift of spiritual sight. And so he chased that man down. And just like he saved that blind man, he will save you if you put your trust in him. Listen, any sin can put you in hell, but only one can keep you from heaven. The sin of unbelief. Every sin God will forgive. Except one. That is if you refuse to believe. John three thirty six says this. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. If you reject God's Son, then you've rejected the only way of salvation. And God's wrath, it says, abides on you. That means dwells, rests upon, stays there. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, the Bible says, These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power. You know what that means? That's an eternity separated from God. God. And it doesn't just mean you're going to be in your own room and you know, have some books to read and just kind of hang out for the rest of eternity. Eternal destruction means you'll be in a state of being destroyed forever and ever and ever. Pain and suffering and torment and loneliness, all the while knowing it's true. God is real. He did send His Son. He was the only way. And I rejected it. I heard that sermon. From that guy on 
Easter Sunday, 2017, and I walked away. Won't you accept Christ's offer to give you sight? Come now. What's holding you back? What is it that's more important? What is it you'd rather have for this life that you're going to trade for the next? Well, I don't believe in that stuff. When you die, you're... Oh, really? How do you know that's true? Is it science talking again? Philosophy? Your experience? There's only one place. The Word of God speaks true. I dare you to start reading it. Read, start reading Gospel of John. Read the other stories that were put here. But don't, don't wait. Don't wait for another moment. Come now. Come now while Jesus is standing here telling you, do you believe? Today, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, he, he rose from the dead. That proves that he is Lord and Savior. And then 40 days later, he ascended, went up into heaven. And one day, perhaps very soon, he's coming back. He didn't leave this earth for good. He is returning. He came first in a manger. He's coming next on a white horse. He came first lying in a bunch of hay where, where animals fed. He's coming back in glory with great white robes with a sword. And you know, Revelation 19, which the same Apostle John wrote, he had seen the vision of what was going to happen at the end. He sees a vision of Christ coming out of heaven. And behind him are the armies of the angels of heaven and the saints, believers, and they're following Jesus to watch as he goes to fight the enemy. Those who have gathered around Jerusalem to destroy Jerusalem and to fight against the Son of God. And my question to you is this. On that day, will you be behind him or in front of him? Will you be his friend or his enemy? Jesus' death on the cross affirmed him as Savior. His resurrection shows him to be Lord. And judge. And we're all going to face him one day. Will it be a savior or his judge? The choice is yours. And perhaps today you might realize that, that, that you are blind. That you do need Christ. That you do need forgiveness. Maybe his spirit is working on your heart. I pray that is the case. Maybe you're like the blind man. Say, Lord, I, I want to believe. I do believe, I think. <laughs> well, don't let this moment pass. Don't head out of those doors without doing business with the Lord Jesus Christ today. Be cleansed of your sin. Turn from it. Come to the Savior. Heed the words of Romans 10.9, which says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a promise. So I want to give you a moment before you go off to the next things in your day. Just take a moment and I want you to talk to the Lord. Just silently there, I'll give you a minute, and then I will pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the privilege that we have that we can actually pray to you. Because of what Jesus did, we can enter the throne room of grace and find mercy and help in time of need. 
And if there's any time of need that is so great, Lord, it is to confess our sins, to recognize our need for Christ, salvation. I pray, God, please, if there are any here who are uncertain about where they stand with you, if there are any here who recognize they are spiritually blind, Lord, that you would just enable them to see, grant them faith. Thank you that we could celebrate today the resurrection of your son. Just the joy that it brings us knowing one day he will return and we will celebrate for eternity. We do not deserve such an incredible gift. We do not deserve to know you. We have spurned you, turned from you, lived our own lives, and yet you offer freely forgiveness to any who would repent and believe. Thank you for all that you've done. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.